Welcome to Tzarech Iyun, a podcast from Yeshivat Oraita. Listen in as two Rebbeim reflect with one another on current events and unpack central Hashkafic questions that affect how they view the world. A forum for diversion perspectives informed by both study and lived experience, these conversations will illuminate a handful of the Shivim Panima Torah and scratch the surface of ideas which may in fact require further exploration. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to another episode of the Tsarich Iyun podcast brought to you by Yeshivat Oraita. My name is David Silverstein, and today I am joined by my friend, fellow Modi'in resident, Rabbi Dr. Aaron Siegel. Aaron Siegel, who is a professor of philosophy at uh, Hebrew University. Aaron, thank you so much for taking the time to be on the Tsarich Iyun podcast. Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure. So before we start talking about the very exciting topic that we're planning on talking about today, I thought maybe for a few minutes you could speak uh, biographically. Uh, you're somebody who I think has a unique personal biography. Uh, you could speak to more of the details, but from what I know, that you grew up in Silver Spring, you studied in the Shiva of Greater Washington, subsequently studied in Gush, went to YU, uh, you have Smicha from the Chief Rabbinate, uh, spent more time studying in Gush, you're a professor at YU, and at some point, you know, during this timeline, you decided to make the jump from the world of the base measures from Greater Washington to then to Gush, and then eventually to University of Notre Dame to get your PhD to study with the famous analytical philosopher Alvin Plantinga. So I, I imagine it's not super common to have the trajectory from, you know, Yeshiva Greater Washington all the way to Notre Dame, but you never know. So I'm curious, just in terms of your own experience as somebody who's always been invested in high-level learning, uh, were you somebody who's always interested in the world of philosophy, specifically analytical philosophy, and sort of, you know, what, what drew you to this, uh, this discipline? Okay. Uh, so I think you did cover my biography already, <laughs> so I don't have to... Uh, uh, cover that ground. Um, yeah, I did start Yeshiva of Greater Washington. I grew up in Silver Spring, Maryland. Um, I actually started at Hebrew Academy. Uh, spent most of my uh, school years in the Hebrew Academy of Greater Washington, uh, now known as the uh, Melvin Berman uh, Academy, um, and then uh, switched to Yeshiva High School uh, for the last three years of high school. Um, at that point, I was, uh, you know, I'd say I switched because I was interested in, in, uh, trying to learn uh, more intensively, uh, that is learn on the Torah side of things uh, more intensively. I thought that Yeshiva would offer me that opportunity. Um, I didn't uh, uh, necessarily come from a home um, which identified wholeheartedly with everything the Yeshiva High School stood for. Um, so if, if it was an unusual trajectory to go from the Yeshiva High School to Gush, which is what I did, uh, it was not an unusual trajectory to go from my home uh, to Gush. Uh, two of my older brothers went to Gush. Um, Rav Lichtenstein and Rav Amital were household names um, in our home. Uh, so, so that move to Gush, uh, although it encountered some resistance uh, from, uh, from people at Yeshiva High School, um, wasn't uh, in any way um, unnatural or, or uh, unexpected uh, in terms of where I was coming from uh, in, from my home. Um, but I, I, if you ask, you know, where, where did the interest in philosophy come from? That's, I guess, the, the final question you asked. So it didn't come, um, uh, it hadn't come at that point. It's not like I went to uh, Gush because I heard uh, there's all that philosophy going on at Gush. Uh, there isn't that much philosophy going on at Gush. Uh, um, uh, you know, I went because, you know, I wanted to continue uh, learning very seriously and I wanted to uh, to learn um, 
by the feet of uh, people like Rav Lichtenstein and Rav Amital uh, and the Ramim um, at Gush. Uh, so, so that's what I did. I went to Gush, um, and then after spending three years there um, uh, in Rav Lichtenstein's uh, shear, uh, I went back to YU, um, which was the initial, um, that was the plan all along uh, to go back to YU. Uh, and I started at YU also not in philosophy. It's not as though I uh, knew at that point that I wanted to do philosophy. I started studying math and physics. I always had an interest in, in math. Um, and I thought I had an interest in physics. Um, and at some point along the way, I think you know, it was in my first year, I took a course in, in logic uh, in, um, in the philosophy department. Um, uh, and I sort of just fell in love. Uh, I fell in love with uh, the discipline. Um, I'm in love with uh, the the rigor with which uh, the issues were being discussed, um, and I, I really just uh, uh, took a liking to the instructor of that course, uh, David Johnson. To those who have been at uh, Yeshiva University, um, it, he's sort of a, a well-known name there. Um, and then I took uh, introduction to philosophy. I hope I'm remembering the order correctly um, to see if it, it, that would be something I'd be interested in. And, and indeed it was. It sort of just attracted me um, from the very beginning. At the same time, um, while the courses in physics were, you know, um, challenging in a way, uh, I didn't feel like the questions that I was really interested in, like just the nature of reality, what was what was behind all of these equations, um, was something that was getting addressed um, in in physics courses. As I would discover later, uh, philosophers of physics were talking about exactly the questions that I was interested in, but I didn't know that then. At any rate, I sort of had a sense that um, maybe physics wasn't for me, philosophy was more for me, and so I stuck with philosophy and math. Um, and that's that's what I studied at Yeshiva University. Um, it was a heavily uh, analytic uh, education in in philosophy. Um, and then I uh, graduated, still wasn't sure what I wanted to do. You know, it was always a sort of one foot in the world of Torah, uh, one foot um, in some other worlds. Um, and at that point, I thought still I wanted to uh, sort of stay in the world of Torah professionally. So after I got married um, to my wife, Chaya, uh, we moved to Israel um, and I learned in the Kolel in Gush for three years. Uh, but then at some point, I sort of had this itch. Uh, I think I probably had the itch all along. Um, but I, uh, it just uh, it, it hit me at some point that I really wanted to do an advanced degree uh, in philosophy in the hope that I'd be able to pursue that maybe in tandem with um, a rabbinic career, but uh, at the very least to try um, to do a PhD in philosophy and see where that, uh, where that took me. Um, so I went at that point to Notre Dame, like you said. Um, I went there in part uh, because I got in, but also in part because uh, they have a very uh, strong um, department in the areas of philosophy of religion uh, and metaphysics, which already, even though I knew not so much about philosophy, um, in retrospect, I knew uh, you know, pretty little, but I already knew those were two areas that really, really spoke to me. Um, and I just wanted to uh, pursue them. Um, and there are two people there, uh, Alvin Planiga, whom you mentioned, um, one of the leading philosophers of religion of the 20th century, uh, and Peter Van Inwagen, also one of the leading philosophers of religion uh, and other areas, um, who were there, and I went to go study with them, uh, and I just had an amazing, amazing experience uh, there at Notre Dame. Um, and yeah, after that, I uh, thank God got a job teaching at YU, um, which I uh, 
I had the privilege of being there for, for three years, um, teaching wonderful, wonderful students whom I identified with um, and really uh, enjoyed uh, teaching and learning with. Uh, and then uh, I got an offer uh, at Hebrew U um, here in Israel. Um, and my wife and I both wanted to make Aliyah, um, come back to Israel uh, after having left um, after Kolel. Um, and I took up uh, that position. And I've also been extremely, extremely um, fortunate um, to be at Hebrew U. Um, I, I very much enjoy uh, my teaching there, my students there. Uh, it's been quite an experience. So that brings us up to today, I think. Excellent. I appreciate that uh, thorough biographical introduction. I think, I think actually it's an important segue because uh, the topic we're going to talk about today, I think you're uniquely qualified to discuss. And it's a topic which is, on the one hand, very contemporary, but on the other hand, obviously has deep roots in traditions, particularly the Jewish tradition, um, going back uh, thousands of years. And I want to talk more broadly about the question of AI, artificial intelligence. Now, obviously, this is a topic that, again, a person could write a doctorate. I'm sure there have been many doctorates on this topic. But I want to focus specifically on the question of Judaism and AI and what does Judaism have to sort of contribute to this conversation. Um, and you actually sent me before uh, the podcast a few, a few days ago an article that you wrote that's supposed to be forthcoming uh, fairly soon. Um, about body and soul in Judaism. And I thought this actually was a great way to conceptualize a question. You know, people think about artificial intelligence, human intelligence, you know, is it possible for an artificially intelligent creature or entity to be human, to have consciousness, to have a soul? So before we even get there, let's talk a little bit about what it means in the Jewish tradition for a person to be human. I think if you ask sort of the ordinary Jew on the street who has a basic Jewish education, you know, they probably have heard stories or heard, you know, lectures or heard sort of information out there that what makes a person unique is his soul, right? And they may have even been familiar with sources and certainly in the Jewish tradition that belittle the body and think that basically the body is just sort of a holding place for the soul, but ultimately, you know, the, the goal is to sort of reunite the soul, you know, and in a certain sense, death may even be an, an opportunity. I remember I read a book called The Faith of the Mcnogdim by Professor Al Nadler. Where he talked about you know, some you know, Lithuanian scholars sort of yearning for death and about this possibility of sort of like, you know, reconnecting their soul with the ultimate. So given your expertise, you know, in this area, what would you say, I mean, obviously this is a huge topic and you're not going to solve uh, this problem or sort of address it fully in, you know, six minutes or so, but just more broadly, if you had to sort of articulate from a Jewish perspective, right, what is it about us that makes us human? I'll, I'll, pu I'll put the question in two parts. One, is the body of any significance? And two, what exactly is the soul, right? When we talk about having a soul, what, what does that even mean? Is it just an offshoot of Tzalem Elohim? Or is there something really unique about body and soul that Judaism sees as sort of the focal point of what it means to be human? Okay, yeah. So um, I think there are a lot of um, important questions there. And like you said, I'm not going to be able to address um, even uh, a small portion of them in the, in the time that we have. But um, uh, well, I would start by saying that maybe this is sort of uh, a little bit pedantic, but I think it's an important um, clarification that the question, one of the questions you asked is what makes us human? Um, I think uh, what we're really after um, is what makes us some like theologically or morally, in the case of uh, Jewish law, halachically unique. Um, the, the reason I want to put it that way rather than what makes us uh, human um, is because, you know, it's, it, it would be kind of strange if um, the body, the human body, had nothing to do with what makes us human. Um, 
And it would be sort of like, you know, if we ask, well, um, does artificial intelligence have what it takes to be human? Then in a certain way, the answer is a trivial no. The answer is a trivial no, because being human, at least um, as I'm thinking of it, uh, it, has something to do with like the species to which we belong, right? The species of Homo sapiens, um, humanity, human um, uh, organisms, human animals. Um, this is all sort of a, a biological uh, concept. And so what, what makes us human is whatever relationship it is we have um, to like a human organism. Now, there's a very interesting question, one, you know, a, a metaphysical question uh, about what, it, what exactly is our relationship to that human organism? You know, like wherever I go, there's a human body that goes with me. Same thing is true for everyone, right? Anyone listening, wherever they go, a human body goes. Um, but what's the, what's the exact relationship um, between each one of us and the human body that goes with us? Right. So that's a, a metaphysical question. And we can sort of make it clearer by listing some of the answers, which I'll do in a second. But it's it's helpful to then distinguish that from an important moral or ethical um, or value related question. Right. Which is what, if anything, right, makes us uh, have the special status that we do, um, the unique metaphysical status, uh, sorry, the unique theological status, uh, the unique moral status that we do. What is it about us? Is that something that we can find elsewhere? So in terms of the first question of what we are um, and sort of what Judaism has to say, um, so I, I do think um, sort of there is an important corrective that's called for to this conception that you were talking about, uh, uh, you know, there is a, I think, a, a dominant view maybe um, among religious people generally, not just um, Jewish religious people, but among um, contemporary religious people that strongly associate um, our um, essence or who we are with the having of a soul and maybe even of the, with the dismissal of the body. Um, so this is, uh, you know, a view that you find um, already in the, the Rishonim, um, you find uh, uh, among the, um, you know, medieval Jewish philosophers, you, you have the idea that maybe we have no body at all. In fact, I think that idea may even go back to, to some of the early Midrashim, but along with that, a real denigration of of the body and, and its role so it's really just like an appendage that we want to shed okay and this has a long philosophical pedigree they weren't the first to say this uh, in the philosophical in the philosophical world this is you know sort of the view that you find um uh, attributed at least uh to uh to socrates um in in some of plato's dialogues um that we really are just a soul each of us is just a soul we don't even have a body as a part we're purely immaterial, right? So I should have said, what do I mean by a soul? For these purposes, I just mean uh, non-material, non-physical, non-tangible thinking thing, okay? So on the, the view that I just laid out, each of us just is one of those. And so when we say we have a body, it doesn't really mean that like, you know, definitely we don't have a body in the sense of being uh, a human organism, being identical with, being the very same thing as one. But not only that, we don't even have one of those as a part. The only sense in which we have it is the sense in which sort of 
you know, we, we get to move it around and it, it moves us around. It impacts us. We impact it. We're very closely related, at least while we're, so to speak, in the body, like attached in some, in some way or other. Um, but that's as far as it goes. Right. And as an, I'll just say, as a matter of my own view, that happens to be my own view um, on philosophical grounds. I mean, nothing to do with um, the Jewish sources. Uh, um, but yeah, I mean, I think there, there are good philosophical arguments um, that put forward elsewhere for that very view that each of us just is a soul and, and doesn't even have a body as a part. But if you look at the Jewish tradition, going all the way back to Tanakh, um, and then sort of seeing this uh, uh, renaissance, in a way, of this kind of view in the 20th century, the, the view is more nuanced. You know, you, you get uh, a bunch of different views on this question, but um, as, you know, uh, many scholars argued, many philosophers argued um, for, for hundreds of years already, really, um, but this sort of picked up steam, I think, in the last, like, half century, uh, this um, they, they point out that in the in in the Bible in, in Tanakh, you don't have any clear indication of anything like what we call a soul, anything like a substance, um, this non-material thing uh, that does like our thinking for us, um, or uh, that has some other special qualities. You know, um, like in in Bracious, we are created with Selim Elohim, but there's no indication that that's anything other than the human body, right? That Adam is created with Selim Elohim. Um, uh, that, that could very well just be the human body. You know, God makes Adam um, from the dust of the earth and then he, he, um, he breathes into his nostrils the breath of life. That just sounds like it's something like he's animating. Right, Adam. Uh, he's not adding any extra ingredients. He basically just, you know, took dust, or nowadays we think of it as like, you know, subatomic particles, put them together in a certain way, and there you have it, right? I mean, Adam Arishon is entirely material, it looks like, um, uh, made from nothing but material parts. Um, and so there was this sort of pushback, right, um, in, I, I guess, uh, certain circles, um, both in biblical scholarship and philosophical circles, saying this was an intrusion, an import from Athens uh, into Jewish thought that, you know, made its way into medieval Jewish philosophy and maybe even a little earlier um, in the rabbinic tradition, this idea of dualism, this idea that um, maybe we have some part other than just the matter of which we're made, and maybe even more extremely, that we're entirely a soul, that all we are is a soul that's trapped um, in this body. Yeah, you know, the suggestion is that came from Plato or that came from um, Greek philosophers more generally, um, seeped into Jewish thought, but it's kind of like, um, um, uh, you know, uh, something that doesn't really belong in the, in the soil of, of biblical Judaism. Right? And, and it's not just in, in Tanakh, um, but in Chazal as well, in, in the rabbinic literature, um, you do have certain indications that speak um, in ways that are rather daring about the body and its relationship to us and even its relationship to God. Like you have a famous Midrash that speaks of Hillel, who would go to the bathhouse to do a, and he said, uh, he told his students, I'm going to do a mitzvah every time he went to the bathhouse. And finally they, they said, what do you, you mean? You just go to the bathhouse. Why are you calling it a mitzvah? Um, and he basically says that, uh, you know, he, he presents his body as an icon, 
um, in a sense. That is, that is what is B'Tselem Elohim. Um, the body itself is B'Tselem Elohim, and therefore to take care of that is like a, a mitzvah tamelech. So that was a legitimate pushback. Um, uh, at the same time, I think it went too far. Um, and so I think it took on uh, a life of its own, this pushing back against the intrusion from Greek philosophy to the extent that it tried to uh, completely expel um, any sort of remnants of uh, an idea of an ishama, an idea of a nefesh, an idea of a soul from places in the Bible and places in rabbinic tradition where it's clearly evident, where you do have um, dualistic uh, sort of motifs, right? So you, th there, you know, seems even in Tanakh, maybe some indications uh, that um, there is such a thing as the soul. Um, you know, you have like in, in the same pasuk, a distinction or contrast between the basar and uh, the nefesh, um, right? Samalecha nafshi, kamalecha bisari, the pasuk in, in Tehillim, right? That draws a distinction as if these are two different things. Um, you have the idea uh, in, in Melachim that the spirit returned, the nefesh returned to within, to, right, return to within the child who is um, being resurrected, um, that's resuscitated. That, that seems to be like, you know, an indication that there was something, some substance that could have left, been like, you know, dislocated in a way and then relocated back in the body, right? So even in Tanakh, you start, I think you do already start to find the idea of a soul, and then you could trace this through in Philo, and in rabbinic literature, um, where you have the introduction of a soul long before, I think, you can, um, you know, find clear uh, seeping in of the negative attitude um, that you find in philosophical literature toward the body. And so you have this uh, dualism. I think you definitely have a dualism already very early on uh, in Jewish thought. But... What I've described this, you know, this going to one extreme, I think, in medieval philosophical literature and then the pushback of, of biblical scholarship, I think the truth is somewhere in the middle. Um, the, the truth is that there is a dualism of sorts, but the biblical scholarship and um, the philosophers who are pushing this were right to note that the body is much more central um, and maybe even positive in its, you know, our evaluation of it. Um, in Jewish tradition than it is in other dualistic traditions. So standard dualisms, like I said, you know, going back to Plato, will have a negative evaluation of the body. Um, that's as sort of an ethical matter. But also as a metaphysical matter, they'll see the body as dispensable. You know, like we could, you could do without the body and hopefully one day, you know, you'll just um, be a soul um, and not have that body either as a part or, or an appendage. But I think you, you do find a strong current in the Jewish tradition, um, in, in our liturgy, in certain um, agadic passages, and even in halacha, which see the body as essential, right? see the body as uh, the, the organism, as carrying the identity of the human being, so that a human being last, or comes into existence when the biological organism does and goes out of existence only when that biolog biological organism um, goes out of existence, even if at some point in the interim, many of the capacities of that uh, human being have been lost. You know, so like um, just as a halachic matter, if a, uh, a human being um, 
you know, uh, has reached a point they've suffered cortical brain death. So, you know, their um, cerebral cortex um, has been compromised to the extent that presumably there's no mental life there. There's no thinking going on. But as long as there's a fully intact brainstem, which is controlling the respiration of the organism, the organism is still intact as, as a human organism. And halacha does not treat that person as having gone out of existence, does not treat that person as dead. Um, so it, it seems like personal identity follows um, the body, uh, even if and even as halacha in various places may recognize the existence of the soul and the importance of the soul. So let's, uh, let's pick up on your framing. Um, the way you framed it was sort of what makes uh, human beings unique um, as a qualifier to the idea of like what makes us human. There may be some distance here between uh, philosophical issues and marketing issues. So this may yeah. just be for marketing purposes, I think, uh, what makes humans, what makes us human probably sounds a little better to the average clicker on uh, Spotify than what makes us morally theologically and ethically unique, but you never know. So let's sort you of never go know. with the, It depends on the listener, but you're exactly, right. Exactly, yeah, exactly. So let's go, let's go with your framing. I think that's an important way to think about it. What is it that makes us unique? So let's sort of accept your, your model. There's sort of two qualities to our uniqueness. One is that we have this soul. And I'll also note that I think you may have mentioned this in this article that even though you're right, that there are scholars who do push back on the idea of having a soul within the biblical framework, there are scholars like Richard Steiner, right, who have yeah. argued back on that point and said, actually, no, even with the biblical model, right, and you alluded to this also in your presentation, that it's not so simple reading the biblical model, whether or not those philosophers who are being critical are right, right, can sort of go both ways. But certainly when you get to contemporary philosophy, Jewish philosophy, it seems like the soul model in different iterations has sort of won the day, right? So now the question becomes, okay, let's sort of like play this out for a second, okay? So now let's sort of transition from it to AI, artificial intelligence, okay? So, you, you know, most people are probably most familiar with artificial intelligence from ChatGPT, right? So now, before we get to the, the details of artificial intelligence in terms of what is it and what it's not, and is it in any way unique the same way we're unique, maybe just for two seconds you could sort of describe to people, like, what's in store in the world of AI? You know, you know, sort of, I'm somebody who doesn't use AI, ChatGPT that frequently, but I do use it periodically, and it's, it's pretty remarkable. So, you know, the question is, like, 10 years from now, 20 years from now, like, are these types of podcasts that are happening right now between the two of us going to be done by AI, you know, bots? Or do, is there, is there going to be any discipline left in the world that isn't done by an AI, right? And that sort of framed the question as, well, wait a second, if these things are doing things that me and you are doing and everybody else is doing, so... It, if we were unique through medium X and they're doing the exact same thing, well, are they just as unique as us? So before we get there, maybe just talk for a few minutes about sort of the AI revolution, sort of like, you know, what wh what's going to be in the not so uh, distant future? Okay. So yeah, that's uh, an important question. A question I don't really know the answer to. Um, so if I've gone on too long regarding questions you asked before, hopefully I'll cut, make it brief regarding this one because I don't have the answer, right? If I had a crystal ball, um, uh, you know, I, I'd be able to tell. Um, the, the experts are, as far as I can tell, sort of the, I'm, I'm talking about the experts on the technology. Right? Um, they're also the philosophical experts um, to what the technology would mean. But just the experts on the technology are themselves uh, split. Um, you know, uh, it's not as though it's binary, but they, they do seem to be rather, um, uh, you know, take rather starkly opposed positions on just how uh, how much we're going to be able to do or they're going to be able to do um, artificial intelligence in the foreseeable future, whether that's you know 10 or 20 years, let's say, let's count that as the, um, the immediate future. Um, 
you know, there are those who I think take very seriously uh, the idea that we'll be able to get to what, what's called artificial general intelligence, uh, which is, um, well, what is that? Uh, it's like, it's artificial intelligence that's not domain specific. Um, so, you know, it's, it's not just the tasks, uh, the particular tasks that they've been trained on that they'll be able to, uh, to do. They'll be much more like us. Um, and you could even maybe define it um, in terms of us, just human-like capabilities, that they'll be at least as capable as we are, uh, cognitively speaking, or behaviorally, cognitively uh, speaking, uh, as we are. Um, and there are those who are optimistic um, or pessimistic, depending on your take on this, uh, but who think that that's not, you know, um, that far off, you know, maybe 20, 30 years um, will be at that point where there's such a thing as artificial uh, general intelligence. There are others within the community of um, artificial intelligence technologists who, from what I've read, um, are much more pessimistic um, about, uh, you know, whether we'll get there within, you know, 100, 200 years. That doesn't mean they're pessimistic about whether we'll ever get there, um, but predictions become much harder, right, once you're trying to predict that, that far out. And I think they're much more hesitant to make any such uh, predictions that far out. But here's, I think, what's really um, important to note, right? I mean, given this dispute um, within the technology uh, world, and maybe more importantly, given uh, the disputes within the philosophical community about the sentience or consciousness of beings like this, um, the moral status of beings like this, uh, and more exactly, I should say, for what it takes to be conscious, what it takes to have moral status, moral standings, that that thing would have interests and rights that we would have to respect. That's a that's a hotly debated question. And as far as I um, can tell, will not be settled uh, anytime soon, probably will never be settled given the capacities philosophical capacities that we have, which means that probably within 10 years or 20 years or even less, we'll find ourselves in a situation in which the moral stakes are extraordinarily high and will just suffer from an extremely high degree of uncertainty regarding both sides um, of the equation, right? So we're presumably going to reach a point if we just continue uh, pushing the technology forward as we are, we're gonna reach a point where a fair number of serious philosophers, maybe theologians and others will say, oh wow, uh, this thing is very probably conscious or very probably has whatever it takes to, uh, to be a, um, a member of the moral community and have moral standing. Uh, and others, other views, other philosophical views, also respectable, will say, no, we haven't reached that point yet. Now, at that point though, when we're there, uh, there are going to be very serious questions about, you know, what we can and should do at that point. You know, if you're, if you're already running some of these systems and maybe you're even, let's say, running a virtual reality in which you have thousands of these, um, these beings who on some views are conscious and have moral standing to unplug that would be like genocide. And some philosophers have actually suggested that. That means that on one side of the balance is the potential for genocide, right, to, to unplug that. On the other hand, um, if you just 
refuse to unplug any of these uh, things once you've gotten them started, then you're taking away resources, of course, from other human beings. And if we're talking about lots of resources, then there is also a huge amount, morally speaking, on the other side of the balance. And so that's where I think we're headed. I think we're headed to a very, very murky and uncertain territory, morally speaking. Well, let's try and play. Let's try and have this play out a little bit, given the material you mentioned earlier, specifically the Jewish material, right? So you mentioned that there's philosophical ambiguity. There's a debate among scholars. There's, you know, the, the terms genocide are being thrown around. Obviously, you know, <laughs> quite hyperbolic, but still, I guess uh, philosophers, you know, you know, oftentimes can uh, you know speak oftentimes in hyperbole. I get where they're coming from, but still, the, the idea basically is is that let's sort of play out, see how this will play out if we try to sort of move over the Jewish side, the Jewish concepts into this philosophical debate. I mean, if you mentioned before that the unique quality of the human, right, is a his body, right, and b his soul. Um, now, do you assume that having the soul is sort of synonymous with consciousness? Because you mentioned before in, uh, in your presentation that there's the possibility of these, these uh, AI programs becoming conscious. And obviously, the question of what is consciousness and you know, who can you know, access it is obviously a very complicated and hotly debated topic. But given your expertise, both philosophically and Jewishly, right, do you assume that the reason why we are conscious is because we have a soul, right? And therefore, like absent that soul, we're not really going to be conscious. And then if you carry that over to the question of uh, AI programs, right? So is it possible for an AI, like from a Jewish perspective, not necessarily just from a pure philosophical perspective, from a Jewish perspective, is it possible for an AI to have a soul? I mean, it, it seems like intuitively kind of wacky, but I guess conceptually not impossible. Yeah. Okay. Um, all excellent questions. Um, I wish we had more time to discuss, but uh, so, as, so as a matter of sort of my own view um, and what I think um, the standard Jewish view, standard Jewish line would say, um, I do think that having a soul is necessary for, let's say, being conscious, right? Um, maybe for some other really important features, okay? Like um, having free will. Uh, you know, uh, if we have free will, um, it could be only thanks to the fact um, that we have a soul. Uh, that I'm much less confident about. Um, but when it comes to consciousness, my own view is that, you know, we, we in fact, are souls and uh, nothing that, nothing material thinks. Nothing material is conscious. Um, there's nothing it's, it's like to be a doorknob, right? Or even a really sophisticated um, computer as they stand now, right? Um, but I'm in the minority of that. So the first point to note is I'm in the minority uh, on that question philosophically. Um, and given the complexity of the issue within the Jewish tradition and the fact that, um, you know, uh, e even though it's true that, the, you know, souls, the uh, Shema has made it sort of into the heart um, of the Jewish tradition, I do think we have to reckon with the fact um, that I mentioned earlier that it's it's much less uh, dominant. It's much less of a theme um, in the biblical material. Uh, and then you even have some contemporary, um, quite orthodox thinkers like Rav Soloveitchik, um, or at least in, in a few places, um, seems to be reclaiming uh, that biblical tradition in a way that I would characterize as just materialist. Okay, that's not like an insult. That's supposed to be a theological or religious insult. It, he just thinks, uh, in those places at least, uh, that each human being is an entirely material thing. Of course, that's not to deny that we have enormously um, important um, and, and special 
capacities and powers, right? I mean, we're, we're free beings. Um, we, we are rational beings, right, which requires consciousness, but goes far beyond that. Uh, and th those are capacities and powers that are rarely found in the physical world, right? I mean, like the physical world is vast temporally and spatially, and it's only a very, very small portion that has these really um, unique and special uh, features. But it does mean, right, if that view is right, if materialism is true, uh, it means that, no, you don't need a soul to think because each of us thinks and, and we don't have a soul. If, and, and uh, you know, I should just, there's a lot to say here about um, different theories of mind. So we haven't discussed at all, sort of like, what is consciousness? Right? What is it to be conscious? The question we were just addressing is, does it require a soul? But that's sort of um, independent in many ways from the question of what consciousness is. Uh, and, and sort of the, the going view in philosophy of mind, at least it was for a very long time, um, is some, sort, some form of functionalism. Um, so just a very, very brief um, summary of what that means. You know, you, you had this dominant view in the mid 20th century, uh, in psychology at least, at least in some areas of philosophy called behaviorism, which said to think just is to behave in a certain way in response to certain, to certain stimuli. Like to, to be in pain just is nothing more than to wince when punched in the gut, right? Or to be disposed to wince when, when punched in the gut. Like it's not like there's something there that like, the pain, which is explaining that behavior, that's just, that's just what it is uh, to be in pain. And that, you know, people believed it even though it was crazy. And then enough people said that's crazy so that uh, another view um, came, on, um, came on the philosophical scene, which is like a new and improved version of behaviorism. It sort of takes account of what's going on inside, inside the head, you know, if, if that's where our thinking goes on. Um, and it, it, it is like behaviorism and that it, it's all up thinking and particular states like being in pain are really a matter of what causes it and what it causes. It's, it's function. That's why it's called functionalism. But it takes into account its relationship, its causal relationship to other states within the head. Like beliefs are defined in terms of the relationship to desires, which are defined in terms of the relationship to emotion. So it's all holistically defined. But at the end of the day, if you took two beings that were functional duplicates. So not just like, you know, they both act um, uh, on the outside exactly the same way, but that like on the inside, you'd find parts doing exactly what the parts of the other being are doing, uh, then they couldn't differ in any psychological ways. If one of them was conscious, the other would be conscious. Um, so that's the, that was the dominant view. Um, I'd say now it's come under challenge, but I think it's still probably, um, it's very widely held. Uh, you know, it was challenged based on a number of um, arguments, um, which, which suggested that, no, we, we don't really understand consciousness and it can't be reduced to just a matter of, of function, right? Um, that's not really capturing what consciousness is. And so that, you know, gave rise to this view uh, called property dualism, where the idea is it's a dualism about consciousness, not about us, about people, but about like what it is to think. So what it is to think is not a physical state or a physical process. You can't specify it in functional or causal terms. It's its own thing. It's its own fundamental thing. And we just have basic laws, okay, that connect 
presumably, um, connect the way a thing is physically with the way it is psychologically. Right now, how does that all play out when it comes to AI? How does that play out with regard to um, the soul and whether it's necessary? So let me just quickly say, regarding the question of whether the soul is necessary, um, so functionalism um, doesn't sit well um, with the idea that the soul is necessary because you know it seems like any sort of pattern, any um, causal functional pattern that you would say is found in a given thing, you could also have that pattern realized in a physical thing, right? Um, so the idea that you'd need a soul um, doesn't sit very well with functionalism. And even the idea that we have a soul, it doesn't sit very well with functionalism, um, not because our soul our souls couldn't think by way of those patterns, but because then we'd have like too many thinkers here. I'd be thinking, my soul would be thinking, but also this brain or this body would be thinking. And so here in my chair, you'd have uh, at least two thinkers, which seems absurd, right? So although maybe there's no outright contradiction between functionalism and the idea that you, you need a soul to think, they don't sit very well together. Right. Um, in terms of the question of AI, so let's go back now um, to these theories of mind um, and see what they what they would say. So functionalism is definitely AI's best shot. Um, some version of functionalism. Okay, nowadays, like it got more sophisticated. You know, versions of computationalism, where it's a matter of what it can compute. Um, you know, if if you're a functionalist, then on the face of it, at least. AI, if it's functionally identical uh, to a thinking thing um, or to things that we take to be thinking, like brains or human organisms, then presumably it too would be thinking. There's no reason to think that there's like an in-principle um, obstacle to realizing that th those functions, those you know, causal functional roles in a silicon device. Like, it doesn't seem like there's any reason it would have to be organic rather than something made of silicon. You could just replace neuron by neuron, you know, an object that's made of a different material that's inorganic, that's made of silicon or something else, um, and still realize the very same functional roles, right? So on the face of it, at least, according to functionalism, which, as I said, it's still a widely held position in the philosophy of mind, uh, you, you would get the conclusion that if our artificial intelligence gets sophisticated enough, and it's like sort of like a perfect simulation of a human brain, a functioning human brain, um, then it would be conscious, right? There are some complications there that are almost always ignored, except by a few metaphysicians. Um, one of which is, I'll just mention, because I think it's very important uh, for understanding how the soul might be relevant in surprising ways. Uh, but one complication is sort of the philosophers of mind don't think about what objects there are. They just think about like what it is to think or what it is to be conscious, but they don't think about whether like there are such things as computers, right? Whereas, so I'm, I, I do a lot of metaphysics and think about just sort of on the very basic level, like what objects are there? You know, I, I, it's not obvious that if you just, you know, take a bunch of atoms um, and arrange them in some way or even not arrange them in some way, you get a new object made of those atoms. It could be much more like a heap, right? And like Aristotle thought, like there are there's a difference between a heap, which, you know, doesn't make a new object. It's still just those objects as a plurality, as many things, not one thing that's made up of them. A difference between that and something like an organism. 
which is a single thing. So it could be that you have the same functional um, uh, pattern that's realized in an AI, but speaking of in an AI is just loose and it's not, it's misleading in the sense that there really is no being there. There's no object, no single object that we could say would be conscious, right? So that sort of usually gets a pass. People don't, um, don't mention it, but it's interesting in light of the, these more theological or metaphysical discussions that are open to the existence of the soul in that it might be that AI has a slightly better chance if there's such a thing as the soul um, and if a soul is necessary. Right? How would that go? Well, it would go because um, if a soul is necessary for thinking, right, then we have to start asking, okay, well, where, where are there souls in the world? Who, you know, what, which things are ensouled? Um, and this is just a general problem that we have about other minds. It's very hard to know what other things are thinking. Um, that, that is not what they're thinking, but which things out there actually manage to think anything at all. Right? Um, it's very hard to go even beyond your own case. Like, you know you're thinking. Okay, so that's one. How many more thinking things are there? Am I thinking? Um, you know, you're looking at me now, but how do you know that I'm thinking? It's, it's very hard to give a good argument um, that starts from, well, you're thinking, and I don't know, you, you, you have a brain, um, to, oh, Aaron has a brain, so he must be thinking too. I mean, that seems like a very poor argument. And it's not clear on what basis we do this, we, on, you know, what basis we generalize, and how do we decide which things um, are thinking. So connected to that is the problem of other souls. For those who believe in souls, you have the problem of, well, how do I know which things out there have souls uh, and which don't? Um, and, and what does it take, sort of how, how do things get souls? So th these are open questions for those who believe in souls. I think they're open theologically speaking too. Suppose you know, we take on board the standard Jewish view that says that uh, each of us does have a soul. Um, is that like something that God sort of puts in directly uh, at some point in our development, right, in the development of this organism, maybe at conception, maybe after? Um, or are we supposed to think that God works by way of of laws, laws of nature, the way that, you know, many of us are inclined to think about the natural world, about the physical world. God doesn't go around tinkering here and there with everything. He just created laws um, and things uh, that obey those laws. So maybe he also put in place what philosophers call psychophysical laws, laws about, you know, the connection between the physical state of something and the mental state of that thing. And so even if you think that there are souls, you might also believe in that kind of, um, that kind of connection. And that is, you know, the dom among philosophers who believe in souls, which we're, we're a distinct minority, but among those who do, um, I think the vast majority believe that there are just natural laws that connect the existence of a certain kind of uh, physical being, right? It reaches a certain level of complexity, let's say, when the materialist would think, oh, okay, that thing can think now. And the dualist says, no, there's a law that says that when you have that, a soul comes into existence or a soul comes to be attached uh, to that physical object yeah, but right? that and then gets that, to think. Right, but I mean, just um, we have time for maybe, I know it's, uh, this topic can go on forever. And obviously these are you know, topics that uh, require a lot more uh, analysis. But if I could just push back for one second on that last point, 
um, you know, I think within the Jewish framework, obviously, nobody would assume, you know, a lot of the conversations we're having now assume a high level of intellectual capacity, right? So let's say a thinking entity, something which can really sort of communicate, right? So I don't think anybody who's a serious uh, Jewish theologian or halachist would say, for example, that somebody who's limited intellectually, right, is somehow doesn't have a soul, right? So it, it seems a little bit as if, you know, we're assuming that according to this sort of model describing where like the world is structured in a way that the soul sort of like just appears at a certain point of human development, right, to assume that for certain people who don't actually achieve that level of development, right, they may not even have a soul, right, um, which sort of, I think, would be tough to sell Jewishly that somehow, you know, only certain people get souls, other people don't get souls, right? So it seems to me, although this is certainly not my expertise, is that, you know, if we wanted to sort of go the route, you know, of sort of conceptualizing uh, AI and thinking about these types of things, we have to say somehow that, you know, if you're soul-oriented, right, which certainly the Jewish tradition, admittedly, there may be some debate about the biblical scholarship, but certainly the contemporary iterations are very soul-centric. So once you start saying that the human being, by virtue of being a human being, right, has a soul, right, then it may be more difficult, not impossible, more difficult to assume, even with the model you're describing, to assume that somehow, you know, an AI, right, all of a sudden gets it by virtue of being, you know, highly intelligent, right? Because the argument would have to be go both ways, that the people who aren't as intelligent somehow don't have the souls, which doesn't seem to be in any way a standard view. Right. For, for sure, I think that's an excellent point, um, that when we start thinking about the question of moral status and, in our context, halachic status, of a being, right, such that it has to be treated with human dignity um, and uh, you know, accorded all of the rights that a human being does. Um, uh, you know, like I said before, I mean, a human being who, um, you know, finds himself unfortunately in a situation where he's no longer able to think anything at all, right? So I'm not talking about um, that sort of uh, development that uh, didn't occur at the normal rate, but just you know, a person suffered cortical death, uh, we still think right, in Jewish tradition and certainly in Jewish law uh, that that person uh, is alive, right? This is independent of the question of brain death. Um, brain death uh, and its halachic status um, is, is, uh, uh, arises when you have um, brain stem death, right? I'm not aware of any serious posic um, or any posic at all uh, who would say that cortical um, brain death would be sufficient, the person is still to be treated uh, as a human being, and that person is still presumably um, around and with us, that very same person. So, and I think that's an, a very important point um, that uh, many of the views out there about what makes a thing, the general philosophical views about what gives uh, a human being to the extent that anything does, the special moral status that it has, uh, you know, there are a bunch of views, but any one of them that Sort of point specifically to its in, the, the human intellect or human rationality um, is going to fall prey to this very serious objection that it would mean that those human beings um, who don't have that, never reached it or had it but then lost it, um, would not uh, need to be accorded the the same uh, treatment and wouldn't have the same rights. And that's, you know, um, uh, arguably abhorrent, um, but clearly at odds with the Jewish tradition at the very least. Um, does that mean, though, that nothing else could suffice, right, that nothing else could suffice for the existence of a soul? Um, I'm not sure. I mean, I would find it kind of peculiar, now shifting gears a little bit to the, in the theological direction, and I'm sort of uh, reminded of an ar article by Rabbi Lamb on uh, extraterrestrial life. Um, I mean, do, are we really committed to thinking that 
human beings, in, in addition to being, um, you know, special, are absolutely singular uh, in the universe in terms of possessing a tzelem elokim, in terms of having that uh, that moral status. I don't think so. Right? I mean, there's nothing in in Tanakh which which, which would suggest that. Um, I don't think there's anything halacha which would suggest that. I think Rabbi Lamb says, like, understandably, halacha is silent on that. Halacha doesn't talk about extraterrestrials because halacha deals with man in this world, right, on, on Earth. Um, it doesn't generally relate to things like uh, extraterrestrials. But from a theological perspective, it's it's almost an affront, you might think, to God um, to think that, uh, you know, th- there wouldn't be or couldn't be um, many other beings out there, right? That God could choose to create B'tselem Elohim, um, and this is this is a view um, that Rav Chazdei Kreskas seriously entertains this idea, um, and and other thinkers as well. That sort of the like theological fecundity, God God is beneficent. So you'd expect that he would uh, he'd be creating. Um, many beings in many different places or allow for the creation of, in the case of artificial intelligence, many beings who would, uh, who would have this status of Tzalem Elohim. Yeah, I mean, even there, though, I would argue that, um, you know, one could certainly push back on that, too, and say, well, let's say the, the common sort of denominator between us and the alien, right, in theory, is that we're not, we are creatures created by something supernatural. Right. In other words, the argument would be is that somehow there's some type of supernatural involvement in the process. And that's why the biblical model of like becomes so powerful, at least in terms of like the larger sort of optics of thinking about, wait a second, there's a supernatural being you know, sort of infusing something into something, whether it's a human or something else. Whereas when it comes to, for example, the AI, I, I understand sort of there may be some dissonance here in terms of the philosophical possibilities. But like intuitively, right, people would think, oh, wait a second, you know, I am creating this sort of, uh, you know, this this entity called. AI, and therefore it is different than sort of any other type of species in the sense it doesn't have that sort of divine involvement. Now, again, you could quibble about that and push back, but I think, you know, part of the tension here is that, like, we have intuitions about how we understand these sort of philosophical ideas, and the, the intuitions may not sort of be philosophically be legitimate, but they are intuitions nonetheless, right? And they do speak to, so wait a second, you know, is there something unique about a human being? And at the end of the day, you know, maybe the intuition oftentimes which is sort of driving much of the conversation here, that even if conceptually, philosophically, we may be able to make the argument, there's a sense that at the end of the day, you know, that's sort of so fundamentally at odds, right, with sort of how we perceive ourselves. But anyway, this is an amazing yeah. conversation. And obviously, you know, this is a conversation that can go on for hours. And I certainly would enjoy it if it went on for hours and hours and hours. I hope you would, too. But uh, maybe just very one last so. very short um, uh, recommendation. If, if somebody um, in the larger uh, Orita community or somebody in the larger sort of community of listeners at Tzarek Yun Podcast was curious about this topic, about AI and Judaism, right? has there been anything written specifically that you could recommend? Or are you working on that as we speak? Uh, I mean, I'm working on that as we speak. Um, <laughs> yeah, I mean, a few people have worked on that um, or, uh, that come to mind. Uh, Chava Tirosh Samuelson um, and uh, David Svi Kalman uh, are, are two people who are also working on that. Um, uh, so you could, you could take a look there. But it's we're in dire need of much more work on this. I mean, the world at large is, uh, and even philosophers uh, who I'm sort of surprised – Every time, like every week, that uh, 
um, you know, uh, philosophers raise this as if, wow, there's work to do here. I would have expected philosophers um, to have have realized just how important it is to do this work before, and many of them have, but uh, it's still still surprising when <laughs> it's a surprise to some philosophers. At any rate, in the Jewish world, there's like almost no work on this, and it's uh, a shame, I think, is an understatement. I mean, we're just woefully underprepared for uh, the future, um, the, the, the near future uh, in this regard. It's like, I think, one of the most pressing issues, if not the most pressing issue, uh, facing humanity that Judaism needs to be confronting with and hasn't con confronted yet. So I invite all the listeners to get involved uh, in, in thinking through these things. That's what I would Amazing. say. Amazing. Okay, so if there are any uh, people considering you know, careers in academia, it sounds like uh, there's work to be done, especially on the area of Judaism and AI. So if you want to become the world exactly. specialist on that topic, right, you, you, the opportunity is there. But I want to thank uh, Aaron again for joining us. And as I always say at the end of the podcast, if you have any questions, comments, or feedback, feel free to email us at orightopodcast at gmail.com. And if you have any suggestions about future speakers, about content, etc., we're always uh, welcome and happy to hear from you. Hope everybody's having a great day.